This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Almost 37 years ago, Delta Flight 191 took off from Fort Lauderdale, headed west to Los Angeles with a stop in Dallas on the way. And the weather in Dallas on that August afternoon was windy and raining, stormy and violent. And as that Lockheed L-1011 TriStar approached the runway at DFW, it encountered a vicious wind shear, which suddenly pushed the aircraft downward, all the way downward. The plane made contact with the ground in a plowed field about one mile north of the runway, just north of Highway 114, actually crossing that highway at more than 200 miles an hour and killing a driver who likely never saw it coming. As the plane continued on its crash path, it smashed into two water tanks on the north end of the the airport, broke apart, and burst into flames. 137 people lost their lives on that horrible day in Dallas. Now, as soon as the immediate aftermath of the disaster was behind them, people began looking for answers and asking why. The first questions in tragedies like these are always the most obvious. Why did the pilots try to fly through such a dangerous thunderstorm? And what really happened through that whole episode? But the questions, they soon get more difficult. Where was God? How could God have allowed something like that to happen? Well, sadly, this morning... I'm not going to answer those difficult questions for you. Some things are just too difficult for us to comprehend. As God tells us through his prophet Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. But although we may not have answers to those questions this side of heaven, we do have God's given, revealed word to help us. And God has given us his spirit to help us understand and know what that revealed word would be saying to us, to minister that word deep within our hearts. So before we look at Psalm 34 this morning, to aid us in this quest, let's ask God the Father, Jesus the Word, and the Holy Spirit our guide to help us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in that word. And Father, we thank you that you have given us your spirit to help us understand and apply the deep truths contained in there. Father, this morning I pray that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, and open our hearts to receive what you would say to us this morning from Psalm 34. Encourage the brokenhearted, strengthen the weak, and be glorified in all we do. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 34, and please stand as I read from God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Psalm 34. Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you as holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Please be seated. What an amazing and rich psalm. As I prepared to preach this text this morning, by far my biggest challenge was wrestling with the parts that we just weren't going to get to cover. There was so much ground that we could have plowed together this morning, so much richness in this psalm. Couldn't possibly get to it all. But with that confession out of the way, let's go ahead and get started with, uh, with what we can talk about. Let's look first at that superscription or the heading of the psalm. It says up there, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. The ESV says David changed his behavior. So what's this all about? What's going on here? Well, that superscription is referencing a period in David's life that's described in 1 Samuel. And to set that stage a bit, Saul is the ruler of Israel, but he has fallen into sin. And God has rejected him as king. In his place, God has selected David, who is likely still a teenager at this time. He selected David to be the next ruler. David is anointed, but Saul still sits on the throne. See the seeds of a problem there? Well, it gets worse. Just a few short years later, David, almost certainly still a teenager, kills Goliath the giant from Gath. Remember that name, Gath, that hometown. That leads to a rout of the Philistines. And as a result of this amazing, miraculous victory, David is celebrated as a national hero, stirring up the intense jealousy of Saul. It gets worse. Saul decides that he must kill David, and so he twice throws a spear at him, trying to pin him against the wall, and then engages in a years-long pursuit of David to kill him. And it gets worse. So now let's pick up that story in 1 Samuel 21. David is running from his life from Saul. And where does he decide to flee to? Where is the best place to hide? He decides to go to Gath, of all places. The hometown of Goliath. The Philistine hero he had just killed, which led to the deaths of many, many Philistine warriors. Perhaps David thought, no one will think I'm crazy enough to go hide in Gath. But while Saul Saul didn't find him there... He did not go unnoticed. David is captured, and he's brought to the king of Gath, a fellow named Achish, still a little bit raw, I'm sure, along with the many widows of Gath, about the killing of their giant and all their fighting men. 
And now it's worth noting that our psalm uses a different name than Samuel does when he's describing this king. Our psalm calls him Achish, and our psalm refers to him as Abimelech. Many scholars believe that Abimelech was a royal title for Achish, not his actual name, much like the Romans would call their emperor Caesar or the Egyptians would call theirs Pharaoh. Regardless, David is in deep trouble. He tells us in 1 Samuel that he was very much afraid. So what does he do? What is David's plan to get out of this mess? Well, he plays the insanity defense. Verse 13 of 1 Samuel 21 says, He pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. And in one of my new favorite verses in the Bible, King Achish says, Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Now, for those of you that are hiring managers, I suggest you break that line out next time somebody brings you a resume to approve. Am I so short of madmen? Um, anyway, it worked. King Achish set David free. Well, that's the background of this psalm. David was in deep distress. God reached down to rescue him. So in our message this morning, I want to dig into this psalm and I want to look at three different points with applications for each one. Our first point is going to be call to God in our troubles. Our second point is going to be our response when we see his answer. And point three is going to be our response when we don't see his answer. Now, in the background of 1 Samuel 21 that I just gave you, we don't really see any account of David reaching out to God during this incredible, stressful, and dangerous episode. But everything we know about David would lead us to believe that he had to be constantly praying to God during his time in Gath. And in fact, we see this clearly in the psalm. Look at the words David uses to describe how he reacted to the trouble that he found himself in in Gath. In verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord. In verse 6, he says, this poor man called. So that's the great example that he's setting for us. That as we walk through the dark valleys or even of trouble, and even in our days of sunshine and peace, look to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord hears us. We are promised over and over and over again in Scripture that the God of the universe hears the cries of his children. Let's continue reading those two verses I just mentioned in verse 4, David says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. In verse 6, David says, this poor man called, and the Lord heard him. And look at this wonderful promise in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Doesn't this bring you comfort that the God of the universe cares for you like this? That even in the darkest nights, he is with you. Now, when we lived in Ireland, our kids were little, probably six and eight years old, and they begged me every week to let them walk to the corner store by themselves and get my Saturday newspaper and some candy. So finally, I gave in and I let them go. I can still remember my daughter skipping all the way to the store, her little ponytail bouncing back and forth as she skipped. And how do I know that if they went by themselves? Because even though I let them go on their own, I secretly followed them all the way there. And even though I was allowing them this new privilege and this new independence, I was close enough that I could have immediately responded if I needed to. My eyes 
were on them. And I was attentive to their cries. And as Jesus tells us in Luke 11, our heavenly father is an infinitely better father than the best of us. So that's our first application point this morning. Call to God in our times of trouble. Seek God. Look to God. And is there any time that we feel closer to God than when we can actively and unequivocally see his hand of mercy and provision upon us? David cried out to the Lord. The Lord answered him. He saved him. David was sent away unharmed. Now, at the beginning of my second year at graduate school, I came home one day, and Sally handed me a wrapped present. It was not my birthday. It was not our anniversary. Duke had not just won one of its five national championships in basketball. So I unwrapped the gift, having no idea what it was or why I received it. And inside was a baby bib that said, I love my daddy. Now, needless to say, we were ecstatic. Although we had not talked much about starting a family, the timing was perfect, and my wife had wanted nothing more in her life than to be a mother. But that evening, in our little apartment in Durham, was quite likely the emotional high point of the next five years. We lost that baby in a miscarriage, and we suffered through an additional seven miscarriages after that, including one dangerous ectopic pregnancy. We tried a number of medical procedures. None of them worked. It made no sense to us. Like David, we sought God. Like David, we looked to him. Like David, we cried to God. We cried a lot that year, those years. It was a very difficult time. A time when we may have missed a Mother's Day Sunday service or two. But like David, God hears our cries and he heard us then in ways that we never could have imagined or hoped for with a richness of blessing that so far surpassed our best imaginings and dreams. The merciful hand of God and the miraculous, gracious, gospel-affirming, soul-knitting process of adoption, we brought first Cameron and then Abby into our family. Now, I do not think that there is a scriptural truth that God heaps up additional blessings to those that wait so long and go through so much suffering, but God heaped up Additional blessing to us with Cameron and Abby. There is no way God could have blessed us more richly than it did with our children. I am sure that all of you love your children and are proud of them, but you are all fighting for second place. No, no offense. As I remember saying in front of our church after we adopted them, every time you see these little kids, I hope that you'll be reminded of God's faithfulness. But there is so much more to our adoption story than just the wonderful kids and now my beautiful daughter-in-law, my wonderful son-in-law. Don't get me started on my new grandson. God's answers to our cries extended far beyond anything we could have imagined. I remember during those really, really dark days, a buddy of mine from church gave me a verse. He literally gave it to me. It was written on a scrap of paper. It's old school. Handed it to me. And the verse was 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Man, I can remember that verse hitting me like a dud. Not a bomb, not an explosion of grace and joy, a dud. I remember thinking to myself, am I supposed to feel better because somewhere down the line, Somewhere in the distant future, 
I'm going to get to make someone else feel better. Sorry, but at this point, I need something that's a little more fast acting. But I never forgot that verse. And I will always testify to its power and its truthfulness. We were open with our friends at church about our fertility struggles and our suffering, and they were so, so wonderful and supportive. But they were also watching what God was doing and what God did. And in that little bitty Sunday school class in Plano, Texas, of young marrieds, Cameron and Abby were the first of 19 adopted children. 19. God had allowed us to truly comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Praise God. And that leads us to our application points for the second part of the message, for how we are to model David's response when we see God Almighty move to answer our cries. First of all, when David sees God answer his cries, he praises him. He exalts his name. In fact, that's the very way in which he opens this psalm. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. When we see God move, we must praise him. And secondly, we see David use that answered prayer to encourage the people of God to likewise turn to him in their troubles. That's what my friend did for me by sharing that verse in 2 Corinthians. He was encouraging me to find comfort in God. And you see this encouragement from David throughout the psalm. In verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in verse 9, come my children and listen to me. As one commentator said, the psalmist's own experience of God's gracious deliverance compels him to invite others to share his own experience. And thirdly, in David's words of exhortation, we are called to fear the Lord. Now, at first blush, this admonition to fear does not sound like a good thing. In fact, we all remember every time an angel appeared to a man, that startled person, the first thing the angel would say was, fear not. But this kind of fear is something different. One author has described this kind of fear as the idea of awe and wonder, of joy and hope. The worshiper stands before the one who holds all things together. Fearing the Lord means that we are not left to our own resources to control and survive the elements of creation, but that we can trust the creator who sustains that creation, controls the future, and holds our best interests at heart. David is calling us to hold God in a position of reference. And as a result of or an outworking of that fear, we are to live lives that seek to please him. We see this in verses 11 to 14 where we are called to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from telling lies, to turn from evil, do good, and to pursue peace. So when God answers our prayers, we are to praise him. We are to share with others the great works that God has done for us. And we are to seek, seek to live lives of holiness in response to his goodness to us, to fear him. These are the proper responses of people when God answers our prayers. So what do we tell the families of those that perished on Delta Flight 191? What do we tell our brothers and sisters in Uvalde who will mourn their children for the rest of their lives? And what do we say to each and every one of you here today that is sitting under the burden of deep pain and suffering even this morning? Loss of a child, loss of a parent or a spouse, loss of a marriage, of a job or a dream. What do we do when rescue feels far away? 
And boy, I want to tread very, very carefully in this section because I am 100% confident that those pains are real. And I'm likewise 100% confident that those pains are in this room. As I said in the beginning of the message, there are no easy pathways through these valleys of darkness. Answers are not always apparent. But as Psalm 119 tells us, God's word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. When we don't see an answer, we don't know where to turn, we must soak our souls deeply into the word of God. For in the word of God, we find story after story, example after example of God demonstrating his power and his might and his faithfulness to a needy people. Like the writer of Hebrews, I have no time to tell you about Abraham and Elijah and John the Baptist and Stephen, the first martyr. But those accounts and so many, many others are in there. And they can encourage us and they can light our dark paths. As one author said, since God makes himself known through his word, we are to cultivate a love for and dependence upon the holy texts. This is our first application point in this third section. And it must always be plan A in good times and bad. Dive deeply into the word of God. Now, after David escaped the clutches of Achish in 1 Samuel, we read that David left Gath and fled to the cave of Adullam. That doesn't sound like a particularly fitting place for a king, does it? Yet some believe that it was in this very cave, these very dire circumstances, this depressing cave of Adullam, catching his breath after fleeing one king, knowing that another one still wanted to chop off his head, when David composed this song, this song of praise, David knew he was still in danger. He knew he still had dark days ahead of him. He was no Pollyanna. I mean, look at verse 19. The righteous person may have many troubles. He knew. We know too. But though one could argue that the only thing that had changed in David's circumstances was the name of the king trying to kill him. David illustrates my second application point for when God is silent. David continues to worship. Isn't that amazing? Even in the dark cave, even in the ongoing threat to his life. Look more closely at verse 2. Who is David encouraging to worship in verse 2? I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. David is not calling on those who have been healed or rescued to rejoice. He is preaching to the afflicted, to the brokenhearted, the fearful, the troubled, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. When there is nothing in your circumstances to sing praises about, even when you feel that God is silent, he remains worthy of your praise. Now, several days after the crash of Delta 191, the Dallas Morning News published a letter from a chaplain who was attempting to bring comfort and understanding to the people. Now, unlike David, the best that this chaplain could offer was an an attempt to minimize God, to make him less, to reduce him. The chaplain claimed that the God he believed in could not control the forces of nature, had no power over the pilot or the air traffic controllers, much less the plane itself. For this chaplain, the crash was an utterly purposeless event, and God's role was much like that of the corner bartender, sympathetic to our plight, but helpless. Not the sort of God to lead anyone out of any dark caves, is it? In my home, I have one of my dad's books, C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. Has anybody read The Problem of Pain? If not, I highly recommend it. 
Before his death, my dad had survived a dreadful cancer diagnosis as an early uh, adult, great success and great setbacks in his business, and had lived for 25 years with Parkinson's disease. I've never seen a book so marked up and well-read as C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. Now, at one point in this book, Lewis describes this inferior view of God, this view that was held by the chaplain and which is held, unfortunately, by so many, saying that many people want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, likes to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. A contrasting perspective of God was offered, thankfully, a few days later when a man named Robert Phillips wrote to the paper with a reply to the chaplains, a reply that thankfully too was published. And in his letter, Mr. Phillips presented a God with ultimate power and control over nature, quoting Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. As Mr. Phillips says, the God of the Bible is a God with absolute and direct control over the weather. He goes on in his letter to, to highlight the sovereignty of God and points out that we may never understand God's purposes and will surely never understand the mind of God. For we are finite creatures with minds as incapable of understanding God's purposes as my dog Lily is understanding why we give her a shot. But Mr. Phillips says, his, says this better than I do in his letter, so please allow me to continue to read a bit more of it. Does this, does this mean that in this life we can ever fully fathom the divine purpose in a Delta 191 disaster? No. For as the prophet Isaiah said, God is ultimately unsearchable and his ways past finding out. Nor does the knowledge that God is sovereign in our misery take away the real pain and agony we go through. But, and here is where the God of Scripture can comfort us in the face of seemingly purposeless carnage, whereas the chaplain's God cannot. God does have a purpose in everything. And he is a perfect and good God who is in control. And it is in our moment of deepest pain and sorrow that we must deeply feel our need for him. And finally, he says, furthermore, it is in a tragedy even more devastating and inexplicable than the doomed Delta airliner the crucifixion of the perfect man and Lord of glory himself, that we see vividly how evil and seeming tragedy in the hands of a sovereign God can be instrumentalities of great blessing. For the Christ of the cross is the Christ of the open tomb. And that last paragraph serves as a beautiful segue to our third, final point of the application in this section. What do we do when we don't see an answer from God? We must cling to his word. We must continue to worship, and we must set our eyes on the greater hope. Even when trials abound, we must look to the cross and our ultimate hope in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter used this very same psalm. He quoted this psalm in his, one of his letters, encouraging the early churches that suffered under a great deal of persecution and pressure. He writes in his letter, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. 
like the early church suffering deadly persecution, the only way to survive these dark, long days in the cave, those deep, painful nights of not perceiving the hand of God in our troubles, is to cling to the hope that we have in the life everlasting. And did you notice that little hint of that perfect hope that's coming in our psalm? Look at verse 20. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Does that verse ring any New Testament bells for anybody? The Apostle John references this verse in his description of the crucifixion of Christ, our Passover lamb, in chapter 19 of his gospel. He says, Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken. And the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus. And then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. In the words of Psalm 34 written 1,000 years before the death of Christ, we see a glimmer of the hope that will come, the hope of the cross, the hope of the resurrection. Just like Robert Phillips said in his Dallas Morning Newsletter, the Christ of the cross is the Christ of the open tomb. Ultimately, this is our hope as Christians. This is the good thing that no Christian will lack in verses 9 and 10, that no matter what happens in this earthly life, a time is coming when all will be set right. As John tells us in Revelation 21, God's dwelling place will be with us, his people, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Look at the final verse in our psalm. Although I am an avowed NIV man myself, I love the way the King James Version translates this text. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Jesus has promised that our souls will be redeemed. We will not be condemned. We shall not be desolate. That's the promise. Listen to how Kathy Keller describes this truth. She says, while God may not protect you from every bad thing that might, has, or could happen to you, ultimately, through resurrection, you are safe. I will walk through death and come out on the other side, fully healed, restored, saved, and protected. God does not protect us from things that harm us. He protects us as we go through them to the other side of the resurrection where our real hopes and happiness lie. And as reinforced in a recent tweet by her slightly more famous husband, Tim, he said, Job never saw why he suffered, but he saw God, and that was enough. God is enough. Now, as I said in the prayer to open this message, I hope these words bring encouragement to our church, life, light, Eternal perspective to my brothers and sisters in Christ. The God that we serve is a good God, and he is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who works for your ultimate good. A good that will somehow dwarf and eclipse the painful circumstances that we all suffer with in this fallen world. That is the good news of the gospel. But if you were here this morning and you were not yet a Christ follower, there's bad news too. Because these promises of God's loving care and these ultimate good, they're not for you. The Bible tells us that we all, by nature, are separated from God because of our sin. And the penalty for our sin is death and damnation, eternal and unimaginable. 
But praise God, he has not left us in our sin. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, stepped out of the glory of heaven, lowered himself to take on human form, live a sinless life, suffer at the hands of his creation, and die on a cross. Now, he did not do this to set a good example for us. And he did not do this because he was a good moral teacher. He did this to pay the penalty for our sin. And the Bible tells us that if we confess our sin, acknowledge our need for a Savior, and lean completely on the amazing and finished work of Jesus Christ, we will be saved. We become heirs of these wonderful and precious promises, the adopted children, God Almighty. So if you find yourself stuck in a deep, dark cave and you don't know the God that can pull you out, please come to Christ today. There is no hope to be found anywhere else. Let today be the day of your salvation. Now, as our text reminds us, as if we needed reminding, the righteous person may surely have many troubles, but in those troubles we must call to God. And when our cries are answered, we must praise his name, tell others about the amazing work he has done in our lives. And when we perceive no answer, when our prayers seem unanswered, we must dig into his word, continue to worship him, and look forward to the time when all will be made right. Now, as I close this sermon, I want to highlight the song that we are about to sing, a song that actually serves as an infinitely better sermon on this subject than I could ever deliver. It is probably my favorite non-Boswellian hymn. I've entered a new word. It's one that I hope will be sung at my funeral. My wife was in the first service, and she was taking notes for that. Now, many of you have surely heard the story behind the hymn it as well, but I want to share it again because I think it so well demonstrates what David is showing us in Psalm 34. The writer of the hymn was Horatio Spafford, a man with a strong name that I really hope makes a comeback. Do we have any Horatios? We did. Not surprised. Spafford was a wealthy Chicago attorney. He was a man of considerable wealth and property, and he was a 19th century Job. His first son died at a young age of scarlet fever, and then a year later, the great fire of Chicago took much of his property and wealth. Two years after the fire, the family decided to holiday in England, planning to also use that time there to attend a crusade led by their friend D.L. Moody. But delayed by business, Spafford sent his wife and four daughters ahead, intending to cross the Atlantic behind them. But the ship carrying Spafford's wife and daughters was struck by another ship and sank, taking the lives of 226 people, including all four of Spafford's remaining children. The telegraph message that Spafford's wife sent to her husband after her rescue has been preserved. It says, saved alone, what shall I do? On his way across the Atlantic to reunite with his wife, the captain of the ship called Spafford to his cabin and told him, a careful reckoning has been made, and I believe we are now passing the place where the ship was wrecked. Later, writing to his sister, Spafford said, On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down mid-ocean, the water three miles deep. But I do not think of our little ones there. They are safe, folded, the dear lambs. And there, before very long, shall we be too. In the meantime, thanks to God, we have an opportunity to serve and praise him for his love and mercy to us and ours. I will praise him while I have my being. May we each one arise, leave all, and follow him. Man. Like David, Horatio Spafford had seen the insides of a dark, cold cave. 
But like David, Horatio never lost his sight of God. Whether his life was progressing like a gently flowing, bountiful river, or whether his children lay sunk beneath the sea billows rolling below him, Horatio Spafford never lost sight of what awaits. And for that reason, it was well with his soul. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you as a people who have experienced both the bright, glorious blessings of this life as well as the deep, dark caves. Regardless of our circumstances, Lord, help us to call on you. Help us to seek you in your word. Help us to praise you. Help us to look to you for our ultimate hope and joy. And for those walking in this deep pain even now, sitting amongst us even this morning, may your spirit reach deep within their souls and provide comfort. Somehow, in ways that only you can do, and in ways that we can never understand, give them peace. Heal them, Lord. Rescue them, we pray. In the name of the one who hath shed his own blood for our souls, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.